Money is being able to leave a bad boss. Money is being able to leave a bad relationship. Money is being able to leave a bad apartment. It gives you the power and agency to live the life you want to live without fear because it gives you choices. And so I think it's so important to encourage people to want money, to want wealth and richness in their life because it gets them out of bad situations and lets them choose exactly how they're going to live and what a happily ever after means to them. You just need to start because time in the market beats timing the market or picking the perfect investment every single time. Money. Some view it as a bit of a dirty word. Others live their entire lives in pursuit of that. There is so much mythology and misinformation about what it really takes to build life-changing levels of wealth. Even if we find a way to be well-informed and are fortunate to be in a position to be thinking about building wealth, so many are still left to deal with the often triggering family and cultural patterns, the assumptions and values that we have adopted often unconsciously and then been pummeled by around money. What if you could reshape your entire relationship with money? I'm willing to bet that at some point you felt confused or overwhelmed or just plain frustrated when it comes to personal finance. It's not easy to navigate, especially when so many supposed experts seem to be speaking completely different languages. But what if you had a guide, a mentor who could decode it all for you in simple, practical steps, someone to really help you adopt a realistic, yet, quote, affluence-friendly mindset and stop just getting by paycheck to paycheck? My guest today, Vivian Tu, is on a mission to do just that. She's a former Wall Street trader, turned personal finance phenom, educator, and now author of the new book, Rich AF, The Winning Money Mindset That Will Change Your Life. So after burning out in the toxic environment of high finance, which we dive into, Vivian found a new purpose that really took her by surprise, making financial literacy accessible after she realized there was just this huge unmet need for judgment-free, real-world, authentic, and actionable financial advice, especially for people who've traditionally been excluded from a level of financial intel that can be life-changing. So she started creating these viral TikTok videos just packed with straightforward money advice. And now with millions of loyal followers, she has become a leading voice empowering everyday folks to get smart about money and achieve financial freedom. In our conversation, we dive into the assumptions, the misinformation, the missteps that so often become the dominant tropes in personal finance. And then Vivian shares specific insights, strategies, and tips designed to help equip you with tools and knowledge to better understand finances and money and build your own generation-changing wealth strategy, no matter where you are in your life cycle. We explore ways to maximize earnings, how to negotiate your true worth at work, and yes, things like that are a part of personal finance. Things like overcoming investing fears, adopting simple, effective habits to grow wealth, and then tap this resource, not just for your own security and well-being, but also to help make the world a better place to be. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. 
Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So it's really interesting. You literally start out your new book with the line, I hate to be the one to tell you this but the American dream is dead. Take me there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think when I think about my parents' generation, right, it was a blueprint that you were supposed to follow. You could be a decent student, go to college, get a degree, get a desk job. You could be the sole breadwinner in your house. You could live an amazing middle-class life, go on vacation to Florida or Disney World or whatever, twice a year, you would go on two vacations, you would be able to afford a home eventually, you would build your wealth along with the real estate market, which only goes one way, frankly, and you would live your happily ever after. And since then, I feel like my, I'm a millennial. So my generation and the generation after mine, Gen Z and even Gen Alpha now, we're looking around and we're like, hey, I don't know if this playbook works anymore. Because we did everything we were told. We were good students. We did go get those degrees. And now we have a student debt crisis. There are trillions of dollars of student loan debt that needs to be paid back. And a lot of students ended up getting degrees that didn't pay back, that didn't have the ROI they were looking for. Not to mention, wages have stagnated. The cost of housing has, in many cases, depending on where you live, somewhere between 3 to 10 x And life just doesn't necessarily look like it did back in the good old days. And so I think 
it's really important for us to address that the way to wealth, the way to financial security and stability is not the same as it was decades ago. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I think we work on a set of assumptions about the way the world is when it comes to opportunity and potentially wealth building. Just if we do a certain thing, if we show up a certain way, the X, Y, and Z will happen, you know? And we trust in that. And And I feel like what you're describing is right, you know, that kind of worked for a couple of generations. But the truth is also, I think, when you look underneath that, it also kind of worked for certain people. Correct. And it didn't work for other people. You know, so what you're describing as that American dream, it was never really the American dream that was inclusive in any meaningful way. This was like for a certain group of people who showed up in a certain place in a certain way. Yes. And now I think what you're describing is now that sort of, you know, sense of anointing has gone away across the board. Yeah. And people are grappling with this fact, like, okay, so what do we do now? But it's interesting also because you you um, came out of a family in Baltimore. Um, mm-hmm. From what do you understand, your, your folks were um, first-generation immigrants. I'm the first gen. My parents were the actual ones who immigrated. Yeah, on My dad got a uh, J-1 visa. So he was on a student visa. You know, both of my parents are educated. I'm very lucky in that way. My parents both have college degrees from China, and my dad actually has a master's degree that he got at Towson University in Maryland. And so they're nerds. I'm lucky to be the daughter of two big nerds. And because of that, they were able to gain entry to this country in a way that, you know, many immigrants don't necessarily get Mm -hmm. that opportunity. Another common visa for countries like India and China is the H-1B visa, where essentially the U.S. government handpicked engineers, doctors, lawyers, computer scientists, people who were highly educated, had a very refined set of technical skills that could then essentially come to the U.S. and make the country better. So when people make the joke or trope of why is everybody's doctor Asian or why are so many engineers Asian, it's like, what do you mean? Like, we literally have immigration policies that made it so. So to your point, I think the American dream was only the American dream for what many people visualize as American when they close their eyes. You're looking at a white, heterosexual family, likely moderate, upper middle class, you know, the white picket fence house. It didn't work for people of color. It didn't work for women. It didn't work for the LGBTQ community. It certainly didn't work for people who were immigrants or grew up low income. And now that essentially the middle class is being squeezed those same people who believed in that American dream are now looking back and saying, I don't know if this ever really worked for everyone. How can we actually make this fair and how can we make it just and how can we move forward so that all of us can have that financial equity that we're all so desperately looking for? Yeah. I feel like we really are in that moment right now. I mean, I'm curious also as a kid then growing up in the household that you just described, what were the conversations around money? Oh my gosh. (laughs) My parents are very frugal. Let me put that out there. They have been frugal for as long as I can remember. They're still frugal today. And their financial situation looks very different now than it did when I was younger. Growing up, um, evenings, my mom would take safety scissors and I would get the pair of safety scissors and she would get the regular pair of scissors. And we would sit while we were watching TV or like hanging out for the evening after dinner and we would clip coupons. And she was like, Vivian, you see like anything with this like dotted black line with the scissors around it, like you're cutting that. 
And then she would review the coupons I had cut and put them in her little coupon holder. And there was a huge emphasis placed on saving, budgeting. Um, There's a Chinese phrase in Shanghainese. That's where my family's from, Shanghai. It's essentially translates to money has to be used on the knife's edge. And it really meant if you can avoid spending your money, do so. So money was really only used for necessary purchases. I think it developed a pretty like big scarcity mindset in my head that I never knew where the next dollar was coming from. I had to squirrel away all of my savings for later in case of a rainy day. So I've always been really good at that. But there were certainly no conversations around investing or growing my money or demanding my worth and asking for more. Like My parents were there to survive. They were not there to make waves or ask for more. They were happy to just get what they could get. So when you come out of college then and you end up in um, J.P. Morgan Chase as an equity trader, what's going through your mind when you say, like, this is the path I want to step into? Like, mama, I made it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) not just that, like, I had made it, but like, this is the American dream, right? Like daughter of two immigrant parents. I went to public school. I did not have a college counselor helping me write those essays. I go to the University of Chicago. I get this fancy degree. I get the fancy job. Like I made it. I felt like I had one, like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, golden ticket style, had found my one way into being a rich person. I really, that's what I thought. So two and a half years into that fantasy of being a rich person. (laughs) Fantasy is a great way to put it. Right, right. Everything kind of implodes because like the money is there. Oh, frankly, it wasn't. Right. Because that early in that career, it probably like, you're not quite like at that place yet, but um, two and a half years in, like you have this dream job, you have the thing where you're like, like you just described, mama, I made it. Right. Yeah. But something is going so wrong that you decide you have to exit this. Yeah. So Full transparency, I think my very first year, my salary was $80,000. I got a $10,000 signing bonus to move from Chicago to New York. And that was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. I thought I was a quadrillionaire. I thought I was Jeff Bezos. But in reality, I was working a 14 to 16 hour day every single day. And it was actually okay. For the first year and a half, I didn't mind that I was working crazy hours. I felt like I was being paid. So I was like fine with it. But it all changed when the head of my desk got let go. And when there's a shakeup like that on Wall Street, the expectation is that the team that the old boss brought in, they probably weren't super safe in their seats. So basically half of the team gets let go, new boss comes in, brings in a bunch of his cronies. And initially, when I had shown up to my desk, to my job, there were 30 to 40 white men and my manager. My manager was another Asian woman. I, for the first time, saw someone who looked like me succeed in this industry. And it was so reassuring that I could do it because she had done it and we looked the same. But when I was taken away from her to go work for another guy, it started to spiral out of control when this man started to make comments about my appearance. Things like, you're too girly to be here. Didn't like how my fingernails click clacked on the keyboard. Didn't like that I liked pink. Didn't like that I was just not one of the boys. And unfortunately for me, that wasn't going to change for me anytime soon. So I'm like, what am I supposed to do about these characteristics about myself that he hates when this is the guy who determines how much money I make at the end of the year? 
And one day I came into work with a long cardigan on and he looks me in the eye. He touches his hands together and he bows and he says, is that a kimono? All I could think was how much I wanted to like strangle him. Did not do so, obviously. But it's one of those moments when a lump forms in your throat and your face gets hot and there's not much you can say. But I decided at that very moment, I was like, I'm out of here. When you were thinking about where to go from there, did you have the lens that, well, you know, the entire industry is kind of like this, so yeah. I need to completely exit the industry? Or or was there a moment, which you, you, know, you ended up doing, but was there something in you that said, well, maybe there's another angle, another spot, another place, another shop where I could stay in this because it's interesting, there's potential here. I'm curious about that yeah. because you had gotten it to this place. You'd worked so hard. Things weren't happening the way that you wanted them to happen in that particular moment. And it was, it was people related. Yet when you zoom the lens out and look at an industry like that, I'm wondering if you're looking at that and saying, pretty much anywhere I go, it's probably going to be the same. So like, why bother staying and, and just going in time? I'm curious around that sort of like decision-making window. I feel like my mom put you up to that question. <laughs> but we just got off the phone. Actually. Yeah, right. I know. That's exactly what, you know, everyone was basically being like, it's just a person thing. You'd still need to work in finance. Like you should go find a different job, just, you know, but still do the same thing because you work so hard and you already put so much time and like effort. And my parents were saying, like, we helped you get through a college degree that was a quarter of a million dollars. Like you're not about to like just piss this away. And I will say out of a place of probably like naivety, like I was still recruiting for other finance jobs. Mostly I would say at hedge funds, a couple other sell side opportunities, but I really was going to take the first offer I got to get out of there. And coincidentally for me, it ended up being in a media company. I went to BuzzFeed. But I'll be totally honest, I was interviewing with a handful of hedge funds and was getting to like final round interviews with them. It just, the timing was running a little slow for a good reason too, because they'd be like, hey, can you come in for an interview? I'm like, okay, let me think of like what excuse I can make up to like go to this interview. It Because I couldn't be like, hey, I have to leave, leave work early. People would be like, you're supposed to be here 14 hours a day. What do you mean leave work early? It's like, well, I have to go to this interview. So I was making up excuses of doctor's appointments and, you know, my mom is in town. Like there was just so many angles that made interviewing at these companies very challenging. But I think I'm really lucky with how it ended up playing out. But I certainly did feel sad to be leaving the industry after putting in that much work, especially because everyone in my life was telling me the exact same thing that you were asking me of why let it all go to waste after working so hard, after going to UChicago. It's known to be a Wall Street feeder school after, you know, getting the good grades, after going through like a dozen of interviews to literally land that one seat. Like, how do you give it all up? And it's like, at a certain point, you have to recognize what is in your best interest because Everyone around you has an opinion, but they're not the one sitting at that desk for 14 to 16 hours a day wanting to pull their hair out. It's you. Yeah. I mean, it's the the classic sunk cost fallacy, right? Yes. It's sort of like, I put so much into this, so many years, so much money, so many people have sacrificed on behalf of like making, getting me to this place. How could I possibly walk away from it? No matter how miserable I am and no matter how little hope I see of it changing, but yet I'm so invested in it. We feel like we're just, we are locked into 
the investments that we've made in the past that brought us to this place rather than looking at the future and saying, but look at the runway I have ahead of me. Yeah. Our psychology is so weird around this. And can I tell you, I have friends from my analyst class. So basically all of like the people my age that started with me who watched me leave were like, congrats on leaving. I can't believe you did that. And now it's been what, four or five years since I've left. They are still in those jobs and they are still complaining to me about how they're going to leave, about how they want to leave. And I'm like, you've been saying this for five years. And truly now at this point, you are actually at you know, a VP level, like it's going to be harder every year to leave because suddenly your compensation isn't just your salary and your bonus. It's got an equity package that vests over four years. And now you're golden handcuffed to a job or to a shop. And I feel lucky to have gotten out when I did, but there are certainly people who made fun of me when I did it. It wasn't something that people supported. And now looking back, there are still people who wish they could have done what I did and are still kind of stuck on that hamster wheel. Yeah. It is such a tough decision. We share sort of like an odd similarity in that. So I was for, I had a hot minute career for five years as a lawyer in New York city. And I was working in one of the giant firms, same hours that you were describing, 14, 16 hour days, seven hours a week. And I got to a place where I was just so physically and mentally burnt. I was kind of wrecked that I made that same decision, even though I had the job that from the outside looking in, everyone's like, that's the job that we aspire to. I knew that like every day that I stayed there longer was maybe it was going to add to my bank account because I literally didn't have a life where I could spend the money that was coming into it. But if I didn't have a life, it really didn't matter anymore. And I exited that and completely left the entire field of law as well. So I'm fascinated by folks who make that decision because I know it can be really hard. There's a lot of social judgment that often comes along with it as well as your own internal clock saying, am I doing right? Not just by me, but by those who have supported me to get here. And that sometimes can be a voice which is stronger than your own voice where personally you'd be willing to take a risk. So it's it's awesome to sort of like hear the inner thinking around those decisions because <laughs> I think people don't often share sort of like, here's how I thought through it. And here's what I dealt with along the way. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33 inch all terrain tires and multi terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So you end up, as you described at BuzzFeed, um, from what I understand, um, digital sales. And while you're there, you start to realize, wait a minute, all of my colleagues are like asking me all these money-based questions. Yeah. You know, I was one desperate for friendship because I didn't know anybody. So I would sit with a random group of people every single day at lunch, ingratiate myself, be like, what are your names? What do you do? Like try to learn as much about people as I could. And they would ask like, oh, like what company did you come from? And their assumption was that the answer would be something like, oh, like a, I came from Vice or now this or other, you know, a competing media company. And when I would say, oh, I came from Wall Street, like I was a trader, they'd be like, what? Like that doesn't make any sense. And I would explain my career trajectory. And then the immediate follow-up question would be, can you help me rebalance my 401k? Or should we be buying our company stock options? Or which health insurance plan did you pick? Can I just see what selection you made for open enrollment? I'm just going to copy yours. And it was so funny to me because this would be the same three questions that I would get from people who were younger than me, fresh out of college, but also people who were well into their 30s and 40s and very senior, making way more money than I was. And I'm like, wait, you probably make like two, three, four times as much money as I do. How do you not know this? And it made me realize that nobody really gets the financial education that they deserve and or need. And the only reason that I had gotten it wasn't even because I'd worked on Wall Street, was because my very first manager, my very first mentor, the Asian woman I mentioned, her name is Jean, she took me aside and she took me under her wing and basically asked me all of these questions like, are you contributing to your 401k? Are you using the company benefits to pay for your health care? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And obviously I wasn't, but she walked me through it. And I almost joke that instead of a rich dad, poor dad situation, it was like, I had a rich mom, poor mom situation and that like my parents were able to really teach me about that saving and budgeting piece. But Jeannie was the first person to show me how to grow my money, how to hit conventional wealth 
in a way that, you know, we envision showed me how to invest, showed me how to do all those things. And now I was able to then pass that on to my coworkers. And what I ended up doing is putting it on the internet because I was getting the same question so many times. I didn't want to repeat myself, but little did I know more than just my coworkers needed that information. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so you start posting, it sounds like pretty quickly, a lot of people start paying attention. First video, very first video. That one kind of exploded. Was that a shock for you? Yeah, because the very first video, like I did not have an editor. I did not have anything fancy. It was like me, my arm and my phone. I had a little script and I basically just said, Hey, it's the middle of the pandemic. I'm seeing a lot of BS going around on the internet. You shouldn't listen. Like I do not have a get rich quick scheme, but I can teach you about personal finance. It's not that complicated. I used to work on wall street. I can explain it to you. And instantaneously, a couple hours later, I had thousands of follows, thousands of comments. And by the end of the week, that video had gotten like, I want to say like 3 million views. And I had a hundred thousand followers on TikTok. And it was a very much an, oh no moment. Like, how am I going to keep up with the demands and like the thousands of questions I've gotten? And it started to just be like, Hey, just take the next step. Don't worry about what's, you know, a mile ahead or two miles ahead or five miles ahead, but just answer one more question today. And that's how the content started. Yeah. I mean, and now, you know, this is literally just a handful of years later, three years later or so, like as we have this yeah. conversation, you've built a global community where you're, you're in there serving yeah. every single day and answering a lot of questions. It sounds like part of what you realize goes back to the earlier part of our conversation too, which is that yes, a lot of people don't know this information, but also particular communities of people really don't know this information. It's almost like there's a, there's a gatekeeping yeah. effect. And it sounds like part of what you start to step into is, let me not just kind of show what I know, but I really want to actually heal a chasm here. There's a very particular yeah. thing that I want to speak to, and there's information that I want to get into the hands of particular groups and communities of people. Yeah. I love that you bring that up because there is so much emphasis. I call my audience the BFFs, and I've lovingly dubbed them the leftovers because For so long, if you weren't an old rich white guy wearing a Patagonia vest on CNBC, financial services didn't cater to you. If you were a woman, you weren't even allowed to have a credit card in your own name until the mid-70s. If you were a person of color, it was totally possible that your community would be redlined and you would be prevented through unethical and certainly illegal means from buying a home in certain neighborhoods. If you were a part of an LGBTQ couple and you walked into a bank to try to get a mortgage, odds are good you would be discriminated against. You would get a higher mortgage rate with worse terms than if you were part of a heterosexual couple. And people have not had the same opportunities. So I think it's really important to call out these injustices as well as just make this financial information accessible and understandable because anybody can Google the financial rules. But I talk about this in my book, Rich AF, like we don't need just the rules. We need to be taught a strategy, a financial strategy, because you can learn the rules, but you still don't know how to play the game. Riffing off that last word, game, one of your lenses is like, well, this is kind of a game. And like any game, there are cheats, there are loopholes. And this isn't like slick, hey, gimmicky type of things, but there are actually, there are techniques, there are things that people are just not Mm -hmm. aware of that people who have access to different information, to different advisors, to different circumstances are. And one of the things you address is sort of like the power of loopholes when you're really thinking about like, how do I develop a strategy? Yeah. I will say this. 
tax codes, financial strategies, career how-tos, how-to-budgets, savings loopholes, anything like that. These were all written by rich people for rich people. And they've passed these secrets down in their communities for generations. But many of us don't know these things. Did you know that you can be taxed less if you contribute to a retirement account? Now, suddenly, it's not just today you taking care of future you, but it's also today you getting a tax break for doing so. You know, do do people understand how high yield savings accounts offer so much more in earnable interest than a traditional brick and mortar savings account? If you didn't know that, you're missing out and you're still giving your bank a near interest free loan. Did you know that if you set up direct deposit so that a percentage of your paycheck goes towards a specific savings account instead of all onto your checking account, psychologically, you are less likely to dip into that money. You're going to be a better budgeter. You're going to be able to save more. You're going to be able to save on your taxes. You're going to be able to invest. All of these are secrets, but they shouldn't be. They should be easily accessible to the public. And I just you know, really think that this information should be taught in public schools. And until it is, I'm going to be shouting it from the rooftops. So here's my question then. Why do you think it's not? Because it seems like this is information that everybody should know. It's almost like it's expressly not taught at, you know, reasonably at an, an age where people are old enough to understand it and to start to actually act on it, but young enough where if they build certain practices and behaviors into their lives, that it's really going to make a huge difference over time. Jonathan, if it is taught federally in schools, who benefits? It's not the people at the top. It's not corporations. People who have money right now, people who are in power are not incentivized to teach this to the general public. I absolutely hate to sound like tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, but like by keeping some of this information inaccessible or so jargony that the regular person can't understand it or behind a gate kept wall, like we keep our working class working. Somebody has to pump my gas. Somebody has to go deliver my DoorDash. Somebody has to bag my groceries. And to keep people in these minimum wage jobs, in positions where they work, you know, 16 hours a day and don't see their kids, in dangerous and grueling labor that is backbreaking, they can't know better. And that sucks to say because we've seen it time and time again. These people that are paid the least in our societies often are considered the most crucial, the most essential. I mean, look at COVID-19, right? All of us white collar employees, we went home. I stood at my little standing desk. I'm like, oh my gosh, unprecedented times to all of my clients. We joked about how we were making sourdough and that whipped coffee. But what about the construction workers? What about the delivery drivers? What about the people who were, you know, picking up the garbage on the side of the street? What about the people who had to go into the hospitals to work you know, a 24 hour shift as a nurse, like all of these people who likely make less than I did were forced to go into work under very dangerous situations when they likely didn't have the right, you know, precautionary tools to take care of them and keep them safe. And were asked to work for much, much less. And people don't put themselves at risk. People are smart to recognize that like They are going to buy the best life that they can. They're going to have the best career. They're going to have the best house. They're going to have the best relationship with their kids that money can buy. And if they have the opportunity to do better, they're not going to keep doing something that is dangerous or precarious in the same way that when people were getting $2,000 stimulus checks, DoorDash had a shortage of people willing to drive. Because when you have the ability to make a decision out of a place of abundance and you can take that extra week to find not just a job, but the right job, 
you don't want to work the shitty jobs. And so we don't teach financial literacy at a federal level because people in power, corporations, the people who have the dollars to lobby for it, don't have any incentive to. Yeah. I mean, when you sort of zoom the lens out like that, it's sobering. Sorry, that was really dark. Yeah, but it's sobering. And a lot of what you're talking about is like, well, okay, if, if nobody else is going to do it, or if it's not going to be delivered in sort of like a, a standardized educational way, let me actually play the role of the teacher for everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me share what I figured out. And one of the things that you also talk about is really just riffing on what you were talking about is this notion of knowing your worth, you know, understanding that yeah. there's a value that I bring to the table. And it's interesting, right? Because you were just describing a scenario where in the last three to four years, there's been this huge shift in power dynamics in the workforce. And during the pandemic and sort of like the emergence, uh, the last 2022-ish, a lot of power still remained in the workforce and because there was a shortage. And now I feel like the pendulum has started to swing back, you know, and now people yeah. are in this really funky moment where they're like, ooh, you know, like there's, there was a, a year and a half to two years where people were tripping over themselves to find people like me. And I yeah. could basically say, this is what I want. And people would say, yes, please start tomorrow. And now a lot of people are feeling the pendulum swinging back where the power is shifting again. So we're in this really funky moment. So when you talk about you know the importance of knowing your worth and then asking for it and negotiating it, how do you think about this moment? I think these macro trends are always going to be occurring. Either it's going to be mid-great resignation where everyone can basically say, I want a quadrillion dollars and their boss will say fine. Or to your point, as the pendulum swings the other way right now, where it's it feels like almost like you know the great layoffs, people feel very, very worried about job security. At the end of the day, what I like to remind everyone is that the top performer never gets fired. Never. If you are performing at that high level, if you are outselling, outperforming the people you sit around, the people who are in your team, you will always be safe. And it's really important to acknowledge that even during times of instability at a broader level, if you are a strong performer, you can still ask for more money because you still have value and you still have worth and you are providing something that that company needs. And I think it's okay to ask because even if you get told no, you're no worse off than you were 20 seconds beforehand. And so I think regardless of the year, regardless of the environment, you can still ask. And I recommend people ask for 10 to 15% raises every single year, as long as they are performing to that level. Am I saying you're going to get that every single year? Not necessarily, but if you don't get a raise the same percent that inflation is currently at, you know, at one point it was at like eight, nine percent. I think right now it's come in a little bit closer to like five percent. If you're not getting a raise equivalent to that of inflation, you're actually going to make less next year than you did this year. And so not only is it critically important to make sure your pay keeps up with inflation, but also seeing how much your corporation values you through pay is a very healthy marker to understand where you sit. And if you have been told year after year, your performance is not where it needs to be to get that raise. That tells you something. Or if they consistently say, hey, you're our top performer, but we don't have budget. That also tells you something. Maybe it's time to go somewhere where they will have budget to pay a top performer like you. I'd love to get granular for a moment if you're open to this. Let's say somebody's listening to this and they're yeah, like, let's do it. 
yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. And I actually have been a top performer. You know, like there's been a lot of change, a lot of shifting, but I'm the one who keeps staying here. And I feel like I'm doing really good work. But also I see the macro trend here. I see the impact on my company or my team or my division, whatever it is. And I know things are tight, but I still need what I need. Yeah. What would be some basic language that somebody might be able to actually step into to sort of like open this conversation? Yeah. First and foremost, I highly recommend everybody create a brag book, promo pitch, raise receipts folder in their email. Essentially, anytime you get an email that pats you on the back saying, hey, we could not have gotten this project done without Jonathan. Like Vivian is the best designer on this entire team, like whatever. Forward those emails. That way you essentially have a Rolodex of all of the times you knocked it out of the park. And it's very easy to quantify your successes. I would then set time with your manager six to eight months before your end of year review or mid-year review. That's when you start asking for money. Because what everyone likes to do is they wait until November or December and they are too afraid to ask throughout the year. So they like bottle it up, bottle it up. And then it starts to bubble to the service, bubble to the service, bubble to the service. And you get to December and you're like, if I don't get a raise next year, I'm going to quit. And your boss is like, where is this coming from? Like, we've never talked about this. It feels so out of left field. Whereas if you start six months in advance, eight months in advance, and don't be annoying, but be persistent. Remind them every two months that, hey, these are the goals that I'm setting. Here's how I'm tracking to reach them. Additionally, I would like, or you know, a raise of XYZ would be commensurate to the type of work and the level that I'm operating at. Remind them that pay is important to you because they need to know. They need to know that you are always going to be keeping your eye on that dollar sign. And that way, when October comes and HR pulls your manager into a back room and is like, this is your budget. You have to now divvy this budget across your entire team. You understand that your boss is going to have you top of mind because you've been asking for the past you know, six to eight months. You've probably touched base with them two or three times. They know you care about money. You're going to be top of their mind, whereas everyone else is going to be an afterthought because they haven't asked. Essentially, you have to tell people you're going to do good work, do the good work, and then take a megaphone and remind everyone of the amazing work you did so that you can be first in line to get that money because you don't get paid by putting your head down and being the smartest person in the room. There has been statistic research that the person with the highest IQ is not the one paid the most. It is the person who makes the hardest effort to be known socially, and people think they do more than they actually do. That last part, um, being known socially, is really interesting, especially right now when the shape of work is changing in dramatic yeah. ways where some people are in the office, some people are at home, some people are some blend, and that's really changing very quickly too. And one of the big concerns has been, well, if I'm not sort of you know, like physically present in front of the people with whom I have to not necessarily curry favor, but just become known on a regular basis for who I am and what I contribute, that it's going to make it that much harder. And what you're describing is sort of like, well, even if you're working entirely remotely, if you're building your brag file, if you are having the meetings or the conversations where you're in control of the mechanisms to regularly show people how you show up and what you contribute, then it kind of helps offset the fact that you might not be physically present in the office. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you know, there's in my mind a concept of like no FaceTime, no pay. And I think that's true. It's really easy 
to have those little fun water cooler moments when you're in person, right? It's as simple as asking somebody on your team to go grab a coffee in the afternoon. If you are working fully remote or even hybrid, you don't get as many swings at bat is what I call it to have those FaceTime moments. So if you know that for a fact, you need to be going out of your way to strategically schedule time, not just with your boss, but with people who could potentially do you favors. So when I got to BuzzFeed, I did not know anything about media, couldn't tell you what an impression was, had no idea how to sell something. I I just didn't know anything. I noticed that there was a social hierarchy. And if you were a part of this upper inner circle of salespeople who closed, who were just known for closing monster deals, always, you know, being at the top of their game, people would bend over backwards for them. And what I did was every day I would spend 15 minutes getting to know someone new on a team that I had to work with tangentially, not my team, someone tangentially. So I would go out of my way to meet the people in accounting who were the ones who were making sure that our clients paid us. I would meet the people in legal who had to make sure that the contracts were signed. I would meet the people in the brand planning team that would help make really big decks and make them fancy. I would meet the people on the distribution team or the social team or whatever. And that way, when I needed a favor, I had put in all this FaceTime, which you can still do remotely, just ask to set up a 15-minute coffee chat to get to know someone. It's a little harder, but it's not, you know, impossible. But because these people knew me, because they knew that I like to go to Pilates on Friday afternoon, they knew that I cared about the new golden doodle dog they got, that I knew what their kid's name was when I needed a favor, when I needed something done in four minutes instead of four hours, I had a favor to call in. And that made me more effective at my job and putting in all that FaceTime got me paid more. So I do think it's important to build those relationships. I think with the rise of hybrid and remote work, we've started to take that for granted that we always like to do stuff for people we like. And you're more likely to do something for a friend than you are a stranger. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. So here's what's coming up in my mind as you're describing this. A third or so of the population identifies being introverted. And what you're describing is something where somebody's listening to this it sounds very much like the extroverted ideal gets the reward. What if that's not you? What if you're the person who you're like, you know, like, you're actually pretty chill. Like you prefer not to be very sort of like proactively and aggressively social. And it actually is really depleting for you. Do you feel like there's a disadvantage? 100% there is a disadvantage if you are not the conventional description of confident of a leader. And this isn't just necessarily like visually, because that has been the case for me. Like being a young Asian woman has been a disadvantage in that like people immediately assume that I'm going to be quiet and demure and going to take a back seat. But it's also your personality. People who are introverted, people who are neurodivergent, learn differently, need different ways to process information. It's harder for them. It's always going to be harder for certain people. And if you are not the conventional, confident, loud, willing to raise your hand, willing to go to the happy hour after work and schmooze with people because you happen to have kids or a family or other obligations, it is harder for you. And I don't think that we acknowledge that enough. I think there are certain things that you can do to still counteract that, whether it's instead of, you know, doing that big group happy hour, it's 
setting that 15 minutes aside one-on-one with people or even asking for a more extroverted coworker or friend to introduce you to someone. There are ways you can work around it, but I'm not going to lie when I say it's harder. If you are not a conventional learner, if you are not the conventional description of what a confident leading manager looks like, corporate work is harder for you. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because that's me, by the way, I'm raising my hand here. You really? Yeah. Introverted? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And you but know I, you're a podcast host, right? I do know that. But <laughs> at the same time, what are we doing? We're having just like an individual conversation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I found ways to build relationships, to build a community, to build business, to build in a way that accommodates my orientation where I can end each day not feeling empty and depleted, but actually I feel good and still build really deeply meaningful relationships. I think that that's what you're talking about. It's like, know this about yourself. And know that you may have to step into it differently. And rather than showing up at the happy hour or going out for drinks after work, you know, like literally like 10 minutes just in an individual, quieter face-to-face conversation, I've actually found that that can be more effective. Yes. Because it's so different. It's such a different approach. And if you understand how to, you know, like really be present in a conversation with somebody, even for a short amount of time, that is so rare these days that I think it leaves an impression so I, I love the idea that you're saying, let, let's acknowledge the fact that some people, we start on different starting lines, Yeah, but that doesn't mean that you're out of the race. It means that you may have to sort of like step into it differently and think about how you're going to actually make this happen differently. Can I tell you, no one ever believes me, but I'm kind of an introvert too, especially as I've gotten older. I used to be the queen of networking events. I would like buzz around the room like a butterfly, like a bee. I would get everybody's contact. Like somehow I was able to do it. As I've gotten older, it's gotten worse. Like I'm like, I'm not good at this anymore. And I find that I'm so much more effective to your point, just grabbing a coffee with someone one-on-one, forcing them to laugh at my like corny jokes. And then they remember me. And I actually have a system now when I have to go to larger events is I show up early. I show up early. I make sure everybody that needs to know that I was there saw me. You know, I crack a joke or I tell them how pretty their blouse was or whatever. I make sure they know I was there and I'm out of there before that event even hits the halfway mark and the swaths of people start to show up because it gives me anxiety to be in a room with that many people. And it's like, I can barely hear people. You're yelling. I think it also probably has a lot to do with the fact that like, I don't really drink anymore. And in many corporate settings, like alcohol is like a social lubricant. And now that I don't really utilize it, networking has gotten harder. So again, back to your point, like, yeah, it is harder for a lot of us, but we'll find other strategies to make it work. Yeah. And I think in a weird way also, I feel like the um, the move to virtual communication, as hard as it was for people to transition to it because it happens so disruptively it forced everybody to get really comfortable now where you have this opportunity to kind of like check in with people in a visual way, if you want to, even like really quickly in a way that much people are just much more comfortable doing. So there's more of a multi-sensory experience that you can actually drop into. Yeah. I love that. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know, one of the sort of like other categories of things that you talk about in the book is this notion of, we've been talking a lot about sort of like tracking your career and like the making sure you've got enough coming inside, like some of the ideas around that. But also it's what you do with what you have coming in that makes a really big difference, you know? And like you described earlier in our conversation, a lot of times we think, well, this is really complicated. I'm going to have to spend a ton of time learning how to be a stock picker, learning how to invest, learning how to time the market and game the market. And when you look at the people who generally like accumulate long-term wealth, as you write about and you talk about all the time, that's not how it happens. <laughs> not even a little bit. Do I have time to tell a quick story? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I, I mentioned this in my book, but the summer after my internship at JP Morgan, I, I did my 10 weeks. I got my full-time offer. Yay, me. And then they canceled my badge. They were like, okay, employment terminated until this next date you are free and clear to do what you want to do. Because when you are a Wall Street employee, 
there are things you can and cannot invest in on your own personal portfolio. And once my employment for that internship was terminated and I knew it wasn't starting up again until the next June, I was able to invest in whatever I wanted. And that summer, I had done a full deep dive research project into a sector. Each intern was assigned a sector and you had to research three different companies. One, which was a long, aka something you wanted to buy. One, which was a short, aka something that you wanted to sell that you thought was a bad investment. And a third, which was like an options play. And for me, I had done so much research into a specific biotech company. I'm not going to name names. I was so excited. I had run my project through the research analyst. They had basically said, everything you're saying is sound. They had prepped me for my meeting just because I may or may not have uh, sucked up to them with a coffee and a donut. But I did this presentation. I, I will be honest. It was one of the best interim presentations. The sales team was then asked to basically ask questions and try to poke holes in your thesis. Couldn't get through mine. It was a brick wall. It was solid. And I got back to school and I was like, let me put this trade in action, baby. I took 50% of what I earned that summer. I put it all into this one stock because I was so confident. There was no way I was going to be wrong. There was no way. So that miracle drug that they were working on, it didn't pass phase three trials. And the stock price halved in like a 24-hour period. And I was just like, half of my, you know, a quarter of my internship money was gone. And I had earned that money through blood, sweat, and tears. I worked weekends when I was an intern. I was like, this is horrible. But for me to feel like, poof, you know, two, $3,000 was just gone overnight. It was a brutal lesson to learn. But in the grand scheme of things, a pretty affordable and cheap one because I could have put way more money in. But it taught me that there is no such thing as the perfect investment. There are hedge funds. There are brilliant geniuses whose entire job is to find the perfect investment, the best investment. And they get it wrong all the time. And they have more resources, more time, more technology, full teams of people who are reading through financial statements, and they still get it wrong. The amount of time and effort that takes to then be wrong, a pretty fair portion of the time does not make any sense. The people who are able to grow their wealth and grow it consistently have a diversified portfolio of index funds, target date retirement funds, mutual funds, whatever. They're essentially just making a bet on the overall health of the American economy or the global economy or a certain sector. They're not trying to pick the perfect company. They're not trying to do that because oftentimes you'll be wrong. Yeah, it goes against all the mythology. Yeah. It also goes against the mythology that says that there are a, a group of people who know better than you. They don't. I mean, I remember years ago, the Wall Street Journal used to do this um, thing where they would pit these expert stock pickers against a dartboard where they would just put a painted yes. Wall Street Journal up and throw a dart. And then they would say like, okay, we're buying the, whatever the dart landed on. And the dart often beat the top experts in the world. And I have a feeling they stopped doing that because they're probably getting too much. I, I don't know what happened there, but it ended eventually. But you know, it really, it's sobering when you think, wow. If you're really in this, you actually don't have to do all that. You don't have to do all these things. Yes, look, study if you want to. And for a lot of people, it's just interesting. It's fascinating to follow along. Mm-hmm. But what you're you're describing, what you talk about all the time and what we write about in the book is really, let's keep it a lot simpler than that. You're like, spend your life doing the thing that you want to do. Like, Focus on like your relationships, your life, your work, all that other stuff. And put your money in your, your basic index fund, an S&P 500, something like this. Yeah. 
and take a really long-term perspective here. Let it ride. Know that any given year, it's going to be up, it's going to be down. But when you look at 10 years or 20 years or 30, there has been a historical trend that is nobody's going to guarantee it's going to continue, but it's most likely to. And so I love the fact that a lot of what you talk about is sort of like, can we dismantle some of the, the crazy mythology about what you have to do to actually slowly accumulate wealth and talk about the reality of the fact that it's actually pretty straightforward. There are step-by-step things that anybody can do. It's similar to the way you describe saving. You know, they're really simple things that you can do. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the simple shift between having to make an intentional decision every paycheck to set aside money to invest versus just yeah. making it automatic. You know, and as you described, there's research that shows there's a huge difference in what happens when you just make one decision to make it automatic and then let it ride for years or decades. You know, like it is profoundly different. Um, is, is there, when you think about this sort of what to do with your money side of things, is there like one big myth or misnomer that really jumps out at you that bothers you that like, you'd want to speak to? Or is it really just sort of like the accumulation of a lot of just little bits of misinformation that stop us from doing what we need to do? I would say it's more like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's all these little bits of information that people are just missing along the way. I think finance is very, very challenging because it's almost like speaking a new language. The jargon is so heavy. It's not abundantly clear what a 401k is based on the name if you don't already know what a 401k is. It's not abundantly clear what the Roth in Roth IRA stands for if you don't already know. And once you do understand the jargon, it's just really about setting healthy habits in place. But I do think one of the biggest myths is that only rich people can invest. Because how do you think those rich people got rich in the first place? They were investing. It's not something that you wait to do later. It's how you get there. I joke that investing is the only way a single person can be a two-household income because not only are you working hard for your money, your money is working hard for you. It's like having a great spouse who also brings in money and helps support the family of one without having to actually go out and date and find that person, what have you. But it just allows you to make money while you sleep because we as humans can feasibly only work so many hours a day. We are made of flesh and bones. Our brains do give out after a certain point. You are not as good of a money-making tool as your money. Your money is a better use. So the faster you can get to your money making you more money versus your body or your brain making you more money, the better. If you are going to say, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, listen, finally I had a point in my life where I've got a little bit of money where I can start doing something with it. And I know you're probably going to take an issue with even somebody saying I'm finally at a point because yeah. your your whole thing is like, it doesn't matter, even if it's a dollar or $10, just start now. Yes, so let's forget exactly. about that. Like when somebody just says, okay, I just want to know, like, what are the three things? If I could only think about like, um, my life is so crazy, but so busy. Like, I just want to know what are the three things that might be the biggest levers in what I might think about doing with money, even if it's small bits of money as it comes in, you know, like every other week in a paycheck, what would you say to them? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, start an emergency fund. It's really shitty that the number one reason for bankruptcy in this country is medical debt. That seems like that shouldn't be the case. You don't choose to get a kidney stone or cancer or get sick, but it's important to have an emergency fund in case the wheel falls off your car, or your roof caves in. 
you don't want to go into mountains of debt just because you couldn't afford that. So I would say for single people, three to six months of living expenses is good. If you are a head of household, if you have a mortgage, just some more fixed costs, I would say six to 12 months is probably a better bet. So first have that emergency fund. Two, not all debt is created equal. I would rank your debt from highest to lowest interest rate and focus on paying off any debt with an interest rate that's higher than 7% first, because that is high interest rate debt. Typically anything above that is usually credit card debt. And that debt compounds faster than you will likely be able to earn in capital gains if you were to invest. So really, really, you want to pay off any high interest rate debt as soon as humanly possible. It just snowballs so fast that it's going to be hard to get under control unless you're making a concerted effort to pay it down. And then last but definitely not least, if you have your emergency fund, if you have paid off that high interest rate debt, invest early and often. So this is as simple as putting away a dollar to $5, $10 every month and set it up on an automatic direct deposit from your paycheck to your brokerage. And th- there are so many brokerages that allow you to essentially automatically allocate your dollars. And you're going to want to consider index funds. You're going to consider index funds that track the S&P 500. You might consider something that tracks the total stock market, something that travel tracks global indices or sectors that you're passionate about, whether that be tech or the pharma field, or maybe not pharma because I got burned by that. But um, you know, just whatever sectors you're really passionate about, as well as if you're really saving and investing for a specific goal, a target date retirement fund might make sense, right? You want to save and invest for retirement. All you have to do is essentially calculate the year where you will turn 60, 65, whatever, and back into which target date fund makes the most sense for you. And it's essentially a catered way for you to always be investing in something that makes sense for your age. And that's, again, catered to the average person. If you are incredibly high net worth, maybe that doesn't make sense for you, but it's a great jump off point and it's so easy to do. And worst case, if you really feel like investing is still too complicated, just get a robo-advisor to do it for you. You take a quiz about your money goals, what you know, how much money you make, what your goals are, when you want to retire, how much money you're spending, what tax bracket you're in, whatever. And they will pick investments for you. You just need to start because time in the market beats timing the market or picking the perfect investment every single time. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So zooming the lens out a little bit, we've been talking a lot about money, about wealth, about worth. Mm-hmm. In your mind... What is the real role of money or wealth in a life well-lived? When I first started thinking about money and wanting to be rich, it was for very shallow reasons. I wanted to be able to buy that new designer purse, drive my lime green Lamborghini. I wanted to have the mansion on the hill. But as I've started getting to a position where I'm comfortable saying, I'm rich, I live an incredibly good life, I am wealthy, I am doing great Money has become more of the ability to have optionality in my life. Money is power. Money is agency. Money is being able to take an Uber at 11 p.m. at night without double-checking how much money is in my bank account instead of taking the subway because I'm not sure if I can afford it. Money is being able to leave a bad boss. Money is being able to leave a bad relationship. Money is being able to leave a bad apartment. It gives you the power and agency to live the life you want to live without fear because it gives you choices. 
And so I think it's so important to encourage people to want money, to want wealth and richness in their life because it gets them out of bad situations and lets them choose exactly how they're going to live and what a happily ever after means to them. Love that. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So in this container of good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life is to have all of your needs met and then be able to use the resources that you have to not only bring yourself joy, but help provide that joy to others, that comfort to others, and that security to others. I think it's all about spreading that wealth because when you are rich, it is not only your obligation, but it's your privilege to be able to help others, to be able to spread that wealth, to be able to spread that education so that more of us get to live a good life. Mm. Thank you. Of course. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation that we had with Patrice Washington about wealth and purpose. You'll find a link to Patrice's episode in the show notes. This episode of Good Life Project was produced by executive producers Lindsay Fox and me, Jonathan Fields. Editing help by Alejandro Ramirez, Christopher Carter crafted our theme music, and special thanks to Shelley Dell for her research on this episode. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person, just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those, you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen, then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered. Because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.